Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Scott McCartney, and I'd like to start this week's podcast remembering the more than 3,000 people who died as a result of the September 11th terrorist attacks 22 years ago. We continue to deal with the ramifications of that fateful day as a nation and as passengers, pilots, flight attendants, and airline executives. Just last week, more names were added to the Memorial Wall in New York, naming more firefighters who died as a result of injuries that day. So a moment to thank them all for the ultimate sacrifice and to reflect on how, all these years later, we demonstrate every day the reality that no attack or terrorism will ground travel and keep us all from living as we see fit. Sorry to start on a somber note, Ben Baldanza, but I know 9-11 is an important date to you, too. Thank you, Scott. It is an important date for all of us. You know, I have a 17-year-old son who thinks of 9-11 as history, but we remind him how real it was. I was living in D.C., working for U.S. Airways when the plane hit the Pentagon, when Reagan National Airport was closed for 30 days. And for a good bit of that time, no one was sure whether it would ever reopen. But the reality is it matters a lot to us as a society, we have to remember what happened so it doesn't happen again. But on a happier note, Scott, I'm looking forward to talking with Scott Mayerwitz, one of the several Scots in air travel. <laughs> Scott is another journalist I have known a long time and have always respected his work. And now he is consulting to airlines about customer service and communications. It should be a fascinating discussion. I respect his work and enjoy his insights, and not just because he's a board member of the Airline Scott Society. Speaking of news reporting, Ben, we have plenty of news to report and some of it really good news. Let's start with the nomination of Michael Whitaker to be the next head of the Federal Aviation Administration. We've been talking a lot about the need for a strong leader at the FAA to fix the air traffic control weakness this country is in, both technology and staff shortages. And we both know Mike Whitaker, and I think we both agree that he can be a strong leader. He has extensive airline experience as well as extensive FAA experience. He was the deputy administrator. And since then, he's worked in the field of unmanned aircraft systems. 
He has the support of both industry and labor unions. If confirmed by the Senate, he will be the first permanent leader since Steve Dixon stepped down 18 months ago. He should be confirmed quickly because the FAA needs leadership. The problems are affecting flights regularly, and the fixes won't be easy. So let's get to it. Ben, I'd like to think that Mike Whitaker can go in with a five-year appointment and start making the kind of changes Gordon Bethune made at Continental to turn it around. Move out the incompetence. We can't afford that anymore. Give good people the authority to fix the operation. Recruit new talent. Spend the money necessary to deliver better customer service and stop spending on things that don't matter. In my fantasy, Mike Whitaker is so effective that after five years, whoever is president says the job isn't finished and we need this guy to finish it. And then once it is fixed, we start putting Mike Whitaker's name on buildings because he changed air travel for the better. That's my fantasy. I support that fantasy, Scott. And congratulations to Mike. I hope his confirmation sails through, and I hope he gets to work right away. We've been saying on this show for a while, the FAA needs a strong leader. Mike Whitaker can be that. I hope he gets the support from the secretary and from the administration that he needs to do the right things for our industry. In another hiring that might not be quite as consequential, (laughs) but certainly interesting, Delta Airlines hired former quarterback and six-time Super Bowl champion Tom Brady as a strategic advisor. I'm not sure Tom Brady knows anything about airlines, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't fly Delta. But maybe he can coach Delta on how to win in different cities with different teams. He is a guy that has rallied teams to victory in multiple settings, so I hope this works. Well, um, we'll see. It's certainly, you know, the airline business is a lot more complicated than the football business. Um, But I and and I have to say, Ben, I hope it works out better than Brady's promotion of FTX, the now bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange that has seen four top executives plead guilty and founder and CEO Sam Bankman Freed facing fraud and conspiracy charges. What a mess. But Brady retired and came back and won an advanced age for a quarterback. And I guess that fits since Delta has a lot of airplanes that maybe should have been retired sooner and fly successfully at an advanced age. Delta has some 757-200s that have flown for more than 30 years, a lot longer than Brady's 23 years in the NFL. I don't think Tom Brady is really a rousing motivational speaker. As a team leader, he was a guy who quietly worked hard and demanded excellence. So I'm not sure how Delta uses him to fire up the troops. And I'm not sure Tom Brady sitting in a coach seat is believable in any way to consumers, if it indeed is advertising promotion that Delta wants. So we'll see. You know, during the Sunday night football game, there was a fun commercial 
that had Dan Marino, Jerry Rice, and others mm-hmm. watching TV, and they all decided to unretire <laughs> until they thought about how terrible that would be. <laughs> and the kicker at the end was Tom Brady saying, unretire, who would do that? So it was pretty funny. When it gets to Delta, I'm not sure what this is all about. I'm sure people at Delta will want to hear what he says and want to rally around him. He is such a positive leader. Whether he can really help the airline perform better and whether or not he has a real sense of what the issues are facing the airline, I'm not sure about that. The other big news this week was Southwest, United, and Alaska all warning of rising fuel prices and the impact on earnings. Southwest cut its revenue forecast. Jet fuel prices are up 30% from what they were just in July. On top of that, Southwest said it expects unit revenue to be 5% to 7% below what it was in the third quarter last year. Previously, Southwest predicted a 3% drop. We've seen signs of demand weakness in the fall once the busy summer season is over. And higher costs are coming, not only from fuel, but also from labor. So hold on tight. It could be a rocky second half of the year. Hold on tight indeed. The stock market has already punished Southwest. Southwest stock was trading at $63 a share back in April 2021. It was $39 a share two months ago in July. Last week, it fell below $30 a share. And the whole sector is feeling the pain. Last week, the airline ETF jets fell 5%. And there were two departures of note this past week, Ben. People departures, not flight departures. First, Qantas CEO Alan Joyce abruptly sped up his retirement under fire from regulators and consumers in Australia. Qantas is part of the fabric of Australia. People rely on it so much in a country with long distances between cities and long distances to any other country. Qantas service has had problems, and then the Australian regulator caught the airline selling seats on 8,000 flights it had already canceled. Joyce, who is 57, had planned to turn over the controls in November to Vanessa Hudson, the chief financial officer of Qantas. But amid the uproar, Joyce said he'll step aside immediately. Next up, pressure on the Qantas board to reduce Joyce's $24 million exit package. And Justin Urbaki, the CEO of Los Angeles World Airports, said he was leaving to take an airport job in Saudi Arabia. Urbaki got the top job at LAX when his predecessor, Deborah Flint, took off for more money in Toronto. LAX is in the throes of a ginormous construction effort, and it would not seem a good time to change quarterbacks. Does Tom Brady know anything about airports? 
I don't know, Scott, but I do know that Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener today, they are committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. And we want to thank our sponsor, Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, from lower costs, and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. Now let's bring in someone who does know a thing or two about airports and airlines. Scott Mayerowitz is the founder of Globetrot Scott Strategies, which helps airlines and other clients in the travel space with special focus on customer issues, loyalty, and communications. Scott was the executive editor of The Points Guy in charge of news and editorial coverage. Before that, he covered the airline industry for the Associated Press and was deputy global business editor. Scott, it's great to have you with us. Tell us a little bit more about your background and how you came to aviation and travel. Sure. Well, thanks for having me. If you want to go way, way, way back, um, I grew up in northern New Jersey uh, across the street from my elementary school. And when I was a kid, I would lay down on the soccer field, um, not when there were games going on, and look up at the sky. And I was under the approach path for Newark Airport and would watch the planes make the big turn as they started to descend, um, you know, about 10 minutes before landing, and loved plane spotting, got really interested in trying to figure out which aircraft was which. My first flight was on Eastern Airlines, I've just dated myself, uh, down to Florida, like so many others, and I, I just remember having my face pressed up against the window, and was like, look at this, we're above the clouds, and there's the ocean. And it was just so exciting for me. And that love of flying in particular has never gone away. Love of travel and understanding new places and people and cultures. You know, I live in New York City. Sometimes if I'm kind of bored and have some time, I just get off at a random subway station and explore my own backyard. Other times I'll hop on a plane halfway around the world and explore a different city. And I've been very fortunate to be able to be a journalist for over two decades where you're paid, as you know, Scott, to ask questions and meet people. 
and it's it's almost you know there is an amazing bit about like people will open their doors to you or they'll open your you know aircraft for you whatever it is so i've gotten to be in control towers do flight simulators walk on the ground be in the belly of planes all those things that i think people dream about and i'm able to take that and I've always been really good at explaining complicated matters. And we can talk about that a little later. But taking that joy and sharing it and explaining to people, hey, yeah, it's sunny in Florida and it's sunny in New York. But this is why high winds in New York are actually delaying your flight. Mm-hmm. You know, I just stumbled into it. I was a political reporter and I was at ABC News covering Wall Street and there was an opening to head up the network's online travel coverage. And I volunteered for it, got it, sort of made a name for myself, and then found this opening at the Associated Press where it became my full-time job to basically learn everything top to bottom about the industry and distill that down to great stories that people across the country could understand. That's so great, Scott. And I think that's where you and I first met when you were working for AP. Yeah, um, Ben, I'm trying to remember what the first story we worked on together, but that was when, you know, Spirit was growing like gangbusters. You were doing such interesting things there. And I remember we had done a few stories together and we were both at a conference in Baltimore together. And during one of the coffee breaks, um, we were just chatting. You were telling me about your love of board games. And I was like, well, I'd love to play one time. And you invited me down to your house next time I was in town. And I still remember this. Uh, you know, It's one of my favorite stories I ever did. It was you, me, um, Andrew Christie. And we were playing board games, talking about, I think it was... Um, the German power one, the power grid or something like that. It was Ted Christie and Deanne Gable are then head of investor relations was there too. It was a great time. And I just remember, you know, walking through the game and I I still remember um, checking my cards to make sure I had the right amount or the right amount of money. And Deanne turns to me as like, we counted too. Don't worry. Well, that's funny, Scott. Why do you think so many people are drawn to this industry? Do you think you would have been just as happy covering, say, banking or energy or cars? So I'll I'll back into that by saying, you know, my last year, year and a half at the Associated Press, I was in charge of a lot of those things, including energy and banking and the autos team, the retail team. Um, And while I love that, one of several reasons that I left to join the Point Sky was because I found myself missing travel so much. I think the thing that I've found about everybody in this industry, whether you work for, you know, like a UPS or FedEx, or you work for a low cost carrier, or you work for, you know, a very high end international carrier, is that there is a passion for what we all do. But there's also, 
the complexity behind it. Um, and I don't think enough customers really understand this. You know, people are like, well, I connected in this airport during a thunderstorm. Why didn't my bag get there? And I'm like, oh, they tried really hard, but here's how complicated it is. And, you know, just remembering there are 50,000 some odd jets in the air every day in the United States, over, you know, a million people flying. And to get all those people there safely, to get their luggage there, to get them meals, to figure out the ground transportation related to it. Um, but it is complicated. And I love that. So that's why I'm attracted to it. And I think some of the smartest people are in this industry and they're attracted for many of the same reasons. And you get to see the world. It definitely is a fascinating industry. Herb, Herb Keller once said to me, uh, you'd be bored if you covered something else. Uh, what, what are you going to do? Co cover banking? You, you, know, you couldn't live with yourself. Uh, and he was right. Um, so it, uh, I think once people get it in their blood, it's, it's hard to um, uh, think about going somewhere else. Let, let's talk about the points guy. The points guy must have been a very intense experience for you, covering so many different aspects of travel and managing a diverse group of writers. Um, what did you learn doing that? And, and what surprised you? I loved my time there. It was amazing experience. It's a great team. I would highly recommend anyone who is not subscribing to their daily email to go out and do that today. Um, it really became a great news source for people. Um, I was brought in with an interesting mandate. You know, this was a blog that Brian Kelly founded, um, what is it, 13 plus years ago now, and really had that blog voice and a unique spot but it was time to grow up in some ways. Many travelers who start out with points and miles have now kind of graduated a little bit. They want, they're able to pay for some non-points hotels. There was also, you know, not that traditional journalism background. So I came in and it was a very interesting balance because I need to bring in some of those journalistic standards of, hey, build a relationship with this airline. You're going to get a lot of access out of it. And it's okay if you write a bad story, but you should give them a chance to respond. And, you know, one of my first rules, um, always background covered politics. As soon as my story was live, I would reach out to all the people quoted in it and be like, here's a copy of the story. Thanks again. Let me know if you have any questions. And I did that for the good stories and the bad stories. I think journalists need to be honest brokers and tell the truth. And that includes the bad stories. But you need to be upfront with people about what you're asking. And no one should ever be surprised, you know back when I was a newspaper reporter, when they had the paper land on their doorsteps the next morning. Um, the other thing that I did at the Points Guy, and boy, this was a bit of a challenge, was to expand horizontally into other verticals. And the cruise industry does not have a lot of loyalty programs. They do, but it's a very different structure. It's you know years of how many cruises you've taken, you get some upgrades, but it's not like frequent flyer miles. Um, and there wasn't much crossover there, but I, I 
fought and won of saying cruise is one of the fastest growing industries out there. People who take cruises need good travel credit cards, book flights to get there. Let's start thinking synergies there. And yeah, I look back at my time there. I think one of the greatest successes was building that connectivity in the travel world. There are not enough people who think outside of their industry. You have airline analysts, hotel analysts, cruise analysts, but you don't have enough places connecting the hotel world with the airline world and then the credit card and loyalty programs behind it. And that was really my goal there. And um, I'm so proud of what we accomplished there as a team. And I love seeing what they're doing now. And, you know, still kind of miss it a little bit in some ways. Hmm. Well, that's a real valiant effort, too, because you're right. There's so much to travel and so many interesting stories, and we are connected in so many ways, especially the fact that we all share customers. And those customers change from trip to trip, as you know. You know, there's the business trip, the personal trip the romantic couple trip, the family trip. They're, and unfortunately, trips for medical purposes or funerals. And each of those travelers might be the same person, but have different needs along the way. Um, I was just on a family trip and my mother got injured and getting her home, we needed very different things than we would, you know, if she was not having trouble walking. And it made me think about like all the different ways I plan ground transportation, hotels, um, all those things fit together differently for each different experience. And right now the industry I think still fails customers by not thinking that way. You know, airlines still talk about customers from curb to curb. I really like to think about people from bed to bed and you know, what's your ground transportation look like? How early should you get to the airport? Obviously, if you have pre-check, clear, elite status, not checking bags, that's very different than someone who has an overweight bag and has none of those security benefits. Well, Scott, tell us more about Globetrot Scott Strategies and why you decided to go out on your own. Well, Ben, I think it you know it starts with that same concept of the connectivity. This has been for more than a decade, I think my pet peeve with the industry was that, you know, hotel doesn't necessarily care about you until you walk in that front door. And I, I've seen so many opportunities there where if you had a much more seamless flow, you know, we, we all use Waze or other devices to figure out our time to a destination. If I'm in a car from an airport to a hotel, why can't that arrival time be transmitted to the front desk? And could housekeeping be prepared for that? And could someone actually greet me at a luxury hotel for arrival? Or, you know, if it's a big chain, push a key into my mobile app so I can go straight up to my room. So I, 
I had been talking to a lot of people about these things, saw a lot of small opportunities there and said, this is the time to do it. You know, I've been advising for the last year a startup that is actually working on ways to protect you from bad weather. Uh, you book a week-long vacation to a Caribbean island, and we say if you buy this little ancillary add-on, we're going to guarantee that it won't rain more than two days on your vacation. Uh, otherwise, you get your money back. And it's such a brilliant idea and really takes a lot of the anxiety out of a trip. Sure, it might still rain, but now you can treat yourself to a fancy dinner or daily massages at the spa. So that was one of the main reasons I got into this. The other was, it's kind of funny to think this way, but I don't think enough people in the industry are thinking small. And bear with me on this. Um, airlines are amazing at looking at data. You know, we, we look at what the term time is on a jet. How can we shave two, three minutes off the block time? How can we be more efficient? There are not enough people just pausing and looking at what's going on. And I started to do this as a reporter, and I still do it today. If I have time, I'll get to the airport early. I will sit across from a gate and watch from 20 minutes before boarding through the time the door closes. And there's so much you can learn about the staff, which airlines do it right, which airlines need a little work, but also the passengers and their behavior um, from airline to airline, airport to airport. And I just like sitting there watching, and there are little things that you can pick up along the way. I'll give you one example. I was uh, walking through an airport with some airline executives the other week, and there's not much space after security to put your shoes back on, but there's a really narrow bench there. But it's a narrow, ugly, like metallic bench, the type of thing that you'd find at a high school bleacher. And I don't know how much it would cost to replace it, but I'm sure you could get pretty vinyl cushioned, you know, durable benches that match the color scheme and are just a little bit more enticing. No customer is ever going to say, wow, I love the benches after security while traveling through this airport. But subconsciously, it might make that bit of the journey that much nicer and you reduce that stress level out there. So that's my very long way of explaining why I started Globetrot Scott Strategies and sort of what my mission out there is. So you've talked about some of the little issues. What do you think are some of the biggest issues right now for airlines and, and for travelers? Yeah, I, I, that's a great one, Scott. I mean, I think everyone in the industry is nervously watching the fall and winter to see what's going to happen in travel. Um, I hate the phrase revenge travel, but it has been such a great phrase that we've all used for the last two years. That revenge finally seems to be petering out. Return to office policies are getting stronger and stronger. And People can't do four or five days working remote because they've got to be in Monday morning now at the office. Um, business travel has changed where those road warrior consultants 
they might be traveling again, but they're not doing the same weekly trips. And a lot of the people I've been speaking to, they're getting out there on the road, but they're being smarter about combining trips where they can. So you're getting two, three nights at a destination, but not flying as much. Um, So that's sort of what I've been hearing a lot. I think the industry is going to need to figure out how to get through that next phase. One of the pandemic lessons is one that we've kind of always known but ignored. Airplanes can move around pretty easily, and you can rip apart your schedules a lot quicker than we have in the past. So I definitely see that flexibility being a big issue um, and something that airlines are going to be smart at. The issues, as I think a lot of people know, there are not enough aircraft out there. Uh, The backlog on orders is tremendous. There are not enough pilots, which we all know about, and I think the industry is doing some great things to train pilots now. I wish they had thought of that five, ten years ago and really been a little bit more proactive in getting that pipeline going. You got to start you know, really with high school, getting people excited about a career in aviation. And there are grueling moments where you've got flight delays and you're stuck in the cockpit and your day is thrown off, but there are amazing parts of the job too. And I don't think the industry really did itself service in the last decade in how it's been recruiting. Um, The bright side that I don't think enough people are talking about right now is I don't see airlines as a commodity anymore. And I know that's a very controversial thing, and you'll have a lot of Wall Street analysts who will still tell you that people book based on price and schedule. And I agree. There are a lot of people who do that. But what you saw in the pandemic was this buy up to first class. Um, A lot of people were spending money, wanted travel to be better. I don't think that's going to last as we continue the leisure travel trends, but I do think people who have a choice are thinking a lot more about their airlines and what that onboard experience is. Are Is there Wi-Fi, seatback TVs, what's the food and beverage going to be like, um, and even on the low cost carriers, you know, you, you're seeing that buy up to the extra legroom seats or, you know, the big front seat on Spirit. So I think that you're going to see, as we let's just say normalize in the next few months, a little bit more thought for people who have that choice of who they're flying. I know there are many cities that you don't have that choice, but in the big ones where you do, um, I'm hearing a little bit more of, yeah, I really love what this airline is doing and I'll pay the 10, 15 bucks more, probably not 45 or $50 more, but 10 or 15 more. Well, I have kind of a fun question for the two of you. You've both been journalists in this space for a long time, and you've both been very customer-focused. Did you two guys ever see each other as competitors? Let me start with Scott McCartney. (laughs) Well, um, well, a bit, but, you know, I, I always felt like what I did was really different from 
uh, I wanted it to be different from mainstream. And, and I knew that, that Scott at the AP would, when we sort of overlapped, uh, if, if, if at all, at the, when he was at the AP, um, although I, I worked 11 years at the AP and we didn't work there at the same time, um, but felt like he, he, he had a lot more responsibility for uh, mainstream coverage. I, I don't know if you saw it that way, Scott, but, um, you know, I, I respected the heck out of his reporting. He often did good enterprise stories, great enterprise stories that I kicked myself and said, oh, I should have done that. Um, certainly, uh, I don't think, you know, I, I tried to avoid repeating stuff he had already done because he had such uh, good readership and, and reach. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying yes. I, I don't know. What do you think, Scott? Well, Scott, thanks for those kind words. Um, I had always tons of respect for what you did and was always a little nervous when your column came out um, because there was that, you know, compared to others, there was that weekly cadence and I knew what hour it would hit and would be (laughs) nervously watching. Generally, we didn't overlap, but there were, I vividly remember there was at least one time where you scooped me on a project that had been held up in edits for two weeks. Oh. (laughs) And I was so annoyed about it and was like yelling at my editor of like, (laughs) we could have beaten Scott, we had it. Um, And then there was one time where I know I did a topic and I beat you by like two days on it. Uh We both had the same sort of enterprise ethos thought. And I'm sorry, I don't remember either of those topics, but generally there was a kicking myself. Why didn't I think of that? Scott had such a good column on this topic, but that was only, I think, a few things. There were a lot of things that I had to do that you had the freedom not to. I remember when American Airlines filed bankruptcy, the rest of the AP team handled sort of the, um, the Wall Street side of it, the breaking news. And my job was to write for the morning. Um, the you know, American Airlines used to bill itself as the the best in the sky, the first to do this. Sort of more of the thought piece on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was something that I wasn't competing with you on. You know, you always had very yeah. good consumer friendly topics that were just fun to read. Yeah, and th- and that was a real gift to me, right? To be free of um, all the other stuff and just focus on consumer stuff. But um, I did worry about what what you did because um, because you know your stuff and uh, <laughs> and always did did really good stories. Um, and 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 selfishly, I, I have great fondness for the AP and and um, uh, really treasure what the AP does. I, I think it's a it was more sort of a calling and a service um, to the journalism world uh, than anything. So I, I was sorry yeah. to see you leave the AP, but um, you did great things at the Points Guy too. Thanks, Guy. I appreciate it. You always did great stuff. I loved reading it. I think, you know, that message, AP has a slogan to inform the world. And yeah. I think it's just such a simple, clear mission statement. One of my favorite stories, and this is over a decade ago now, I was the first to really report on family seating. And as airlines were holding back more seats for sale as preferred seats, extra leg room, elite status seats, whatever it was, 
I was noticing that families were getting split apart and sort of did the June story right before Memorial Day that was like, this summer, be prepared to kiss your loved ones goodbye at the gate. Hmm. Um, And the power of the AP on that you know, that became such a story. It's still one the airlines talk about today. Yeah. But it was great to shed that light on it. And yeah, in some ways, I miss that ability to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So this all leads in. What are the biggest issues you see for travel journalism? I, I, I think we, you know, all, all three of us and, and listeners too, we get frustrated sometimes when we see so much of the coverage focused on insignificant events or changes, uh, often driven by social media stuff. How, how do we fix that? <sighs> Subscribe to every newspaper and paid TV service you can. Donate money. <laughs> uh, it, it's not just with travel. It's the state of journalism in general, and that was I don't want to say I gave up on journalism by going into this consulting world, but I do feel that I'm able to make a bit more of a difference now. And back at AP and at the Point Sky, I definitely felt like we wrote stories people saw and would would change minds. But the social media side is really taking over so many, what I'll say, like there's no filter to it. And things can go viral that are wrong. So that that's that's really frustrating. I remember um, as a reporter at AP, there were many times where I'd have to talk local bureaus out of stories. You know, plane had smoke in the cabin, returned to the gate. And mm-hmm. everyone's like, do we write about it? And I'm like, honestly, this happens 80 times a day across the nation. It's not an issue, but you happen to see a tweet on it or pick up a police scanner. And there isn't that institutional knowledge out there. You know, Scott, we used to go to various conferences and I would say there was a group of seven or eight journalists who were really covering the industry. We knew each other. We knew all the players at the airlines, at the unions, and we had a really in-depth understanding of saying, look, this is a bold move. So-and-so did this, and here's the context with it. That really doesn't exist that much anymore. You know, my team at the Point Sky was one of the few who really had industry experts still there. Additionally, you know, you have these tools like Data Miner, which I think is really interesting. It goes out onto Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it, and will find certain keywords, emergency, whatever it is. Every big news organization has it. But now anytime anything, no matter how minor it is, gets tweeted out, journalists go panic mode. And it's often people who don't understand the industry. And yeah, yeah, there are things out there that do need reporting. There are safety issues from time to time, but generally speaking, most of this is routine. Yeah. Well, Scott, I think you'll agree with me that among the great things about this industry, one are the personalities. Who are some of your favorite people to cover? And what did you learn from them? I mean, you were one of my favorite because you always said what was on your mind. And 
I don't know if I've ever told you this. Um, one of the times I was down at your headquarters, I got a few minutes alone in your office and I noticed some emails printed out, hidden on the side of a bookshelf, only facing your desk, including one that used lots of words that I can't repeat on this podcast um, to describe you. And I love the fact that you would tape that up in your office almost as a moment of pride. <laughs> it was a very angry customer. Um, you know, there are moments where I think there were some people who really changed the industry in many ways, whether it was pushing for mergers or really being outspoken about how technology can change. And I could list a lot of them, um, you know, definitely both the C, actually all the U.S. big airlines, uh, you know, whether it was a Herb or Gary Kelly at Southwest, both of them very different people, but interesting in their own ways. Uh, Richard Anderson, then Ed Bastian at Delta. Um, you know, Scott Kirby, I love seeing how he's changed from when he was under Doug Parker at American and seeing him today in that role. Um, so there are all these different interesting personalities there. I still love every time Willie Walsh talks, and I know we all saw him a few months ago at an event together, and he was holding court at the bar, and like he always has great stories to tell. And um, Tim Clark, I was in his office in Dubai once, and the thing I love about his office there was just the floor-to-ceiling windows overseeing the fleet of A380s and what was then the new terminal for Emirates. And he just like spread his arms wide, showing the entire like fleet off to me. And I just love the um, the vision there, even though I have many thoughts about the A380 and <laughs> we don't need to go into those. But I just loved how excited he was. But honestly, my favorite thing that I ever covered was a profile on airport chaplains. And Scott, Ben, I'm not a religious guy. It's part of my life, but it's not something where I'm like, I need to go pray at the airport. <laughs> um, I got the privilege of going to um, the International Association of Civil Aviation Chaplains Annual conference. And there was a lot of back and forth to get access to it and win the trust. But I spent a week outside of Atlanta airport. And boy, if you spent a week in Atlanta airport hotel, you've spent a week anywhere. Um, and it was such an interesting group, about 200 different chaplains, all religions. And if you think about it, they, they have two different distinct clients. One is the transient passenger, and you've got seconds to make a connection with them. Very different than your local parish where you see the same people week after week. And the other is the airport workers. You know, airports are little cities or big cities. They're often 24-7. And I love the fact that they're is a service available or someone to go and just confide in at the airport? Um, again, 
not a service I think I would ever use, but I loved talking to each of them. You know, in Charlotte, there's a barbecue restaurant in the courtyard, and right above that in the mezzanine is where the chapel is. And, you know, the folks who work there talk about how they smell barbecue all the time. And, you know, the tip is just look for the barbecue and find us. Um, And that was just such an interesting mix of people, all who loved aviation the same way we do, but play a very different role in this industry that I think many people overlook. And I, I just loved meeting all of them. That's very cool. And I'm sure that in Charlotte, um, uh, that's not a coincidence. In, in North Carolina, barbecue is religion. <laughs> so, Scott, what do you think needs to happen in terms of passenger rights and the debate that goes on in Washington about how to, quote, fix air travel? I mean, as for Consumer Bill of Rights, this is one where I actually wish the airlines would really get together. I know there are antitrust issues out there, but figure out some very basic solutions, um, even on software. Um, Some airlines do a great job where you can rebook yourself. Others, not so good, and you're waiting and waiting. And look, you're never going to get everybody out when there's a horrible thunderstorm. But if you can at least ease some of that tension and say, look, we're sorry, there's nothing we can do for you for 24 hours. Here's the next flight. Here's some hotel options. That would be great. Passenger Bill of Rights gets very complicated because, you know, we all look to European EU rules and what they do, but it's built into the ticket price. And again, unfortunately, air travel has become a commodity for so many people where there's an expectation of flying cross country for $39 plus getting a hot meal, extra leg room, and a few drinks with that. Well, that's not reality. And we don't expect that from other industries. You know, whether you're checking into a comfort inn or four seasons, you're not expecting the same thing from those hotels. Um, and nor should you. And each of them, which I've stayed at both this year, you know, serve a different purpose for travelers. So I think the the fixing air travel needs to be a real good partnership. I'd love to see like antitrust immunity just to work on one or two of those rebooking problems. And then the other thing, and boy, this is going to be controversial, I'm gonna, but I'm going to say it. I think we need to shut some airports down. And this is never going to happen. But you look at some of these smaller regional airports and market conditions with pilot shortages are shutting some of them down. But you have some airports that are just too close to each other. It's not efficient. And it doesn't matter so much for them, but when you feed those flights into the hub airports, that's when things can break down. I would love to see some of those smaller airports consolidated. I'd love to see rail service or bus service come around to help supplement and bring people into those larger regional airports. But again, airlines can't come together and say, okay, we're going to shut this airport down. You see it with the government. If they try to shut down a military base, every local congressman gets upset about it. So I don't know the solution there, but 
our system is falling apart, and that is what leads to many of the issues where we can't serve passengers correctly. Well, Scott, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, your insights, and some great stories. We loved having you on the show. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I hope to see both of you somewhere up in the skies, hopefully not (laughs) delayed and hopefully with an aisle seat. Absolutely. Good luck with everything, and thanks very much, Scott. (laughs) Thank you. And we'll be back with more on Airlines Confidential in one second. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Thanks again to Scott for a really interesting and timely discussion. Ben, I want to mention one other story on the regulatory front since we've discussed this issue before in detail. The FAA gave notice that it will issue new rules on public charters, and it seems to be leaning towards imposing stricter pilot experience requirements. First officers on charter flights with 30 seats or fewer don't need 1,500 hours of experience the way bigger airlines do. Pilots aren't subject to a mandatory retirement age of 65 or the same minimum rest periods as airline pilots either. Operators like JSX, run by Alex Wilcox, who we've had on the show, argue they safely and securely provide alternative transportation that appeals to consumers, often in markets that don't have regular airline service. First officers are required to have a minimum of 250 hours of experience. That was the standard for all airlines until it got raised to 1,500 hours in 2010. Regional carrier SkyWest proposed SkyWest Charter, and that was seen as a dodge around the 1,500-hour pilot rule. Unions and competitors like American Airlines have complained, and the FAA seems to be listening. The agency said, quote, this rapid growth poses an increased risk to safety if left unchecked. And the FAA said it will, quote, begin a rulemaking to address this safety risk, unquote. So if you have an opinion on the issue, get your comments in. Let the FAA know. You know, Scott... I see this happening, and it's really odd in this sense, because of labor costs and others, smaller cities are continuing to lose service. So the charter operators often serve places that can't profitably be served by the bigger industry. Now, we want them to be safe. We want their pilots to be safe. So I'm very open to them looking at what, if anything, needs to be changed. But something else to restrict flying or make it difficult to fly to smaller cities is just another problem, I think, for the industry. So I think we should watch this closely, but I think the public charters like JSX and SkyWest Charter have a real role to play. I agree, but this is a real threat to them. Um, And, and, uh, you know, the problem I have with it is I don't think the 1500 hour rule was ever based on any kind of scientific study. Uh, 
yes, the industry has demonstrated incredible safety, uh, and that's exactly what we want. But there's not a proven cause and effect here that having a, a 1,500-hour requirement has done anything but make it a whole lot more expensive uh, for young pilots to land airline jobs. Um, and I, I do think um, the industry could benefit uh, from having options for young pilots um, with 250 hours of, of experience uh, to get good experience under the watchful eye of uh, captains with uh, 1,500 hours or, or more of experience. And, you know, it may, may ultimately contribute more to safety than have them fly in a Cessna 152 um, doing touch and goes around, a, you know, a, a remote airfield with no congestion, no traffic, no um, no fancy aircraft systems to um, learn how to operate correctly. So a, a lot to unpack here, and uh, and we'll just have to see what happens. But I hate to see this just come down to simply a uh, protect the 1,500-hour rule question. Okay, in this week's mailbag, Angus from Hudson Valley, New York, wanted to clarify something we discussed a few weeks back, Saturday night stays. Angus says we incorrectly said Saturday night stay requirements were a thing of the past because they still exist in some international markets. He notes that American Airlines' lowest JFK London Heathrow business class fare rules state, quote, travel from inbound transatlantic sector must commence no earlier than the first Sunday after arrival at the turnaround, close quote. Angus says, the fare without the Saturday night stay requirement is a whopping $2,000 more expensive. The same is true on Delta's JFK LAX 21-day advance purchase fare. If you turn around midweek, you will pay a $350 premium over a Saturday night on the same fare basis. Hopefully, these fares will become a thing of the past, but sadly, they are still alive and well, Angus said. Angus, point well taken. Thanks for that. Thank you, Angus, for showing us these examples. You know, Scott, if you walk into a Cracker Barrel, you often see, or I often see, some candy bar that I haven't seen since I was a little kid. <laughs> and I've always thought that was the Saturday Night Stay. <laughs> but I guess... Maybe it is still a Snickers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's interesting whether there are other international applications of this rule. And if anyone can find an application within the U.S. too. Yeah, well, you know, it, really the, the rise of low-cost air service forced airlines to do away with the Saturday night stay, right? And we're seeing increased uh, penetration of low-cost operators in international markets now. So maybe it will be that over time, it will be harder and harder for incumbent airlines to continue to impose Saturday night stays, obviously intended to keep business travelers from taking advantage of, of lower fares. And even that, you know, with the rise of leisure travel, 
uh, and people wanting to stay the weekend and certainly benefiting from lower fares, it may be that, uh, that that's a pricing mechanism that just doesn't work in this market anymore. Well, thanks again for listening. Thanks again to Scott Mayerwitz for a super discussion. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.